The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello and welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed nuanced conversations of the tech world and beyond. Well, last week, the trial of Elizabeth Holmes, uh, the former CEO of Theranos, now disgraced, concluded. She is charged with all sorts of nefarious things, including wire fraud uh, that stem from her leadership of the company. And well, uh, everybody right now is starting to wonder what's going to happen next to her, what will happen next in this case, what does it mean for Silicon Valley. We've had Erin Griffith on in the past. She was out uh, at the court uh, at watching the trial. And now we're going to bring in another reporter who's been there through the whole thing. Bobby Allen is an NPR tech reporter. He joins us today to discuss what the situation is with the Theranos trial and what we can learn from it. Bobby, welcome to the show. Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me on. How's it going, man? Going okay. I think we should get out of the way that I'm not here because I'm the most qualified Theranos reporter, but because I bribed you with games of hotshot at a recent hangout you and I had at an arcade in San Francisco. I just thought I'd get that out of the way. That's true, but this has been on on the calendar for for quite some time. Um, But okay, yeah, we could take that. Also, um, I just want to like let's get this out of the way. Like, you're not going to talk the whole the whole podcast in like NPR voice, are you? MP, there's no such thing as an NPR voice, Alex. There's I definitely. Try, I, it I, is. I, I have tried to disabuse you of this false idea. I talk no, I, <laughs> like I do to you, as I do on the radio. Yeah. There's no right. NPR voice. There is. There is. It's kind <laughs> of like, you know, I'm going to try to do it. Today in Georgia, there was a trial about- Yeah, that's like the Sweaty Balls that. NPR voice. We have evolved a lot since the Sweaty Balls era. What of is that? Oh, it's, a, it's like a, it's a very famous- a person? SNL skit. Look it up later. Oh. Okay, I see. So you can, you're going to talk like an actual human being then? Yes, I'll talk like a human. I appreciate that. Um, but but you should. I know we're going to get into the Theranos trial in a moment. But can you do the thing that you were doing, the little warm up that you do before you go on? The oh, Peter thing? Piper picked a prick of pickled peppers. Peter Piper picked a prick of pickled peppers. Peter Piper picked a prick of pickled peppers. I mean, not every NPR reporter does that. I just do it to make sure when I have my headphones on that my peas are not popping because the sound engineers in Washington will hear that and say, push your mic back or take that over because a popping pee is just really mm-hmm. hot on the ear and it's unpleasant. Right. Well, I'm sure your vocal exercise in the beginning will really make our editor, Nate, very happy. So Nate, just a shout out to you in the beginning. <laughs> Let's talk about this trial. What, what stage of the trial are we in right now? Yeah. So this trial has been going on for three and a half months. Of course, the federal government is charging Elizabeth Holmes As you mentioned, with wire fraud, we've seen nearly 30 witnesses take the stand that the government has called. Uh, The defense mounted their side of the story in front of this jury, which included um, days of testimony from Elizabeth Holmes. Right now it's winding down and the, oh shoot, actually, because it's going to go, so I I should act as if the jury is already deliberating because if it's going to air Wednesday, I'll say the jury is now deliberating. Yeah, I'm leaving all of this in, by the way. You are not. I am. We're recording. We're recording on a Friday. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. So the yeah the jury. Um, okay, the jury is now deliberating. I'm holding my nose and saying <laughs> that because it's not true, but it will be true Wednesday. So jury deliberations are underway. So so what does that mean? 
Um, that means that the fate of Elizabeth Holmes is on the line, that these eight women and oh, sorry, back up, that these eight men and four women who um, are on the jury are trying to figure out whether Elizabeth Holmes is a criminal, whether she mm-hmm. intentionally and knowingly defrauded investors and duped patients, or if they believe Elizabeth Holmes, that she didn't do anything wrong. She pursued this company from a good faith perspective, that she was a go-getter, hardworking entrepreneur who saw her business fail, but that's not a crime. And that the government just didn't meet its burden, that she you know, committed a crime beyond a reasonable doubt. That right. if you Thank really you. look at the whole story of Elizabeth Holmes, it's much messier than the story that the government wants to tell. So the jury is, will be sort of hashing that out amongst themselves. Can you, in like 60 seconds, tell us what she's actually accused of? What is, what's the crime here? Yeah, so the, it's, it's a federal um, wire fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud, which is sort of an old-timey sounding crime, isn't it? Wire fraud. <laughs> but if this happened over the mail, like if you sent a check in the mail to someone – um, you're an investor and you sent a check in the mail to Elizabeth Holmes to invest in the company and that investment was made based on a lie, that would be mail fraud, right? This is wire fraud because mm. it happened over wires. But she's accused of deceiving investors about what Theranos technology could do, right? She had this proprietary device she called the Edison or the Mini Lab, and she said it could test for hundreds of diseases with a pinprick of blood. Prosecutors say that's total BS. That was never the case. She made false representations to investors. They lost lots of money. And patients who went to Walgreens in Palo Alto and Arizona who got tests got faulty or error-ridden results, and they were duped. So that's kind of the core of the case against her. So you've been sitting in the courtroom, yeah? Yep. I've been in the courtroom in San Jose. Reporters usually show up at like 2 or 3 in the morning to get a spot. I think there's 34 spots in the main courtroom if you can't get in the main courtroom, you could go to overflow, but there's been a lot of spectators. It's been like a bit of a scene in front of the courthouse every day. Right. So having been there and sit, sitting through this case, what do you think the best argument for convicting her is? And what do you think the best argument for acquitting her is? Hmm. Like, What have you heard that's been convincing on both sides? Yeah. I guess that's a tr- I kind of reject the premise because I, I, it's not my job to to say what's convincing or not convincing. I know you're going to roll your come eyes. Come on, but come on, but you're a person, you know. <laughs> so just give us what. You, come on. Right. I mean, I, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of. I mean, the government mustered lots of evidence, and I I mean, I could tell you what struck me. As yeah. A, okay. I, I don't. Whatever I don't, words you need to make yourself comfortable about telling us what the strong argument was for the government and the strong yeah. argument for Holmes was. You can use those words. Right, right, right. I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to split hairs here, but it's, it's just difficult because like to members of the jury, what is like sticking with them is not necessarily what like academics, lawyers, and journalists like attach themselves to. So it's, it's always hard to know like what piece of evidence or what like legal theory is working. But I mean, look, the government has recordings from Elizabeth Holmes, um, in her own words, before the defense called her, taking the stand, you know, talking about partnerships with the military that never materialized, that that her blood testing um, technology would be used on battlefields when it never was, you know, talking about business partnerships that never came to fruition. They had her on the stand saying under oath that she put the she basically forged documents with the mm-hmm. logo of Pfizer's and other pharmaceutical companies validating her technology when she didn't have their um, okay to do that. 
Um, there's lots of instances of, of that, right? Of um, Elizabeth Holmes exaggerating or allegedly lying about what this technology could do. Um, there's all sorts of screwy stuff about the financials. I mean, the, the big narrative here is that when, when, when basically Elizabeth Holmes was up against the wall and Theranos was um, just burning through investor money and was on the brink of collapse, instead of telling her investors that prosecutors say she lied, she covered it up, and then pulled a lot of shady things to conceal the fact that the company couldn't do what it promised to do. And then, of course, it imploded. Um, but it's not just a startup that has a big promise and fails. It's different because it's in the extremely regulated healthcare space, right? Mm-hmm. And prosecutors say the the type of exaggerations were egregious and not just exaggerations, but that she crossed the line into, into criminal fraud. And that's why, you know, her life and liberty is on the line. She could go to prison. And and the best defense against that? <sighs> Again, I that don't know. You've what, heard? Yeah, I don't know. Have what, you heard anything compelling in the trial about, you know, that would make make people think that she's potentially innocent of, of these crimes? I can't, I can't subjectively say what's best and what's worse. I could just tell you what happened, which is a whole, a whole sort of range of defenses. I mean, one of them included wide-ranging finger-pointing, saying my deputy, Sonny Balwani, was responsible. Lab directors and other scientists were responsible. I mean, the most emotional testimony, and again, I don't know if this will resonate with the jury, but it was definitely striking in the courtroom, was was saying that she was the victim of uh, sexual and emotional manipulation by her partner and the deputy who was also the deputy at Theranos and that so beclouded her judgment that she didn't have the, the, you know, the sort of cognition of a criminal that she like couldn't sort of like think clearly at the time of the alleged crime, which was a super controversial defense, right? She basically Mm -hmm. turned this white collar criminal trial into a trial about sexual abuse. Is that going to connect with the jury or will they dismiss it? I have no idea. But it was it was definitely something that like stood out. I think if you're in the did, courtroom, I mean, she was crying, she was weeping right. on the stand. Did you hear anything that she said that that um, you know made you think? Oh, okay. Well, maybe there's a point there. <sighs> I mean, yeah. I don't. Again, I don't. I don't really know how to answer that. Maybe okay. there's a point there. Um, yeah. Well, let's look. We're going to go through all of her different little defenses in in the next. Not little defenses. All of her little defenses. In the, um, <laughs> In the next segment. So why don't we, we pause on that? I do want to talk to you about the fact that she decided to take the stand, which was extremely surprising to me. Yeah. Because everything we hear about the legal system leads us to believe that it actually doesn't make any sense for a defendant to go take the stand on their behalf because they might trip up and potentially turn the case that's based off of facts into a referendum um, on a single thing they said or their personality, and it generally doesn't work out very right. well. But Elizabeth Holmes did take the stand to defend herself. Why? Yeah, as, as you mentioned, it's dicey from a legal strategy pers- perspective to take the stand. But I mean, if we know anything about Elizabeth Holmes, we know that she is this headstrong person who sees herself as a visionary, who had the charisma to convince dozens of very sophisticated investors to pour nearly a billion dollars into a company that turned out to be a fraud, right? So she believes in the power of 
her um, her words and the power to be able to persuade people. So I think she probably wanted to take the stand. She wanted to address the jury directly that, hey, look, I was this young, ambitious, go-getter entrepreneur who had a dream and it fell apart, but I'm not a criminal. There's nothing that you will hear from me that will make you believe that I knowingly and willingly did something that should send me to prison. And then the second point on why did she take the stand is her defense lawyers in, in legal papers talked a lot about this abuse claim, right? That she was her, her ex-boyfriend, Sonny Balani, forced her to have sex with her, controlled like everything that she ate, the way she spoke, all of these things. You can't make that claim and then not hear directly from her. Right. I mean, if right. you're going to introduce the abuse claim, you need to have the complainant, right? The person who's making that complaint take the stand under oath. And she did. And, you know, she was subject to cross examination from the government. And it was pretty intense. It was pretty awkward. I mean, it was like, if there was one thing that really jumped out at me as being like some of the most dramatic scenes that unfolded in this courtroom, it was like the government's cross examination of Holmes about the abuse stuff. Yeah. And what was what? Well, didn't you know? If you think that that the reason why she took the stand is because she was this charismatic person that was able to convince mm -hmm. all these folks to give the money away um, for a product that ended up not fulfilling the expectations, couldn't end up making the um, the a number of diagnostic tests that she promised. When you saw her up on the stand, did you find her convincing? Um, what was what was it like? Did did you see some of that come through? And did you watch the? reactions of the jury and did you think that there was a connection there yeah um so the jury they're all wearing masks for in this trials in covid time so that does take a key piece of information away from like is this connecting is it not connecting you could kind of see their eyes and their body language but i mean so much of like you know reading someone's emotions is their face and it just sucks that that's covered up from the perspective of like trying to figure out what the jury's thinking and feeling. Um, from the audience perspective, I mean, she came across as I'm, I'm sure that she was trained and mm -hmm. had many exercises leading up to this about all sorts of things. And she seemed very coached. She was very confident. She stuck to what her storyline is with the rise and fall of Theranos. And she came across as pretty human. I mean, like, you know, when she was talking about the abuse, she was like, you know, she was she was dabbing her eyes with the tissue as her eyes were welling up. She was weeping at certain points. She spoke haltingly. It didn't seem like crocodile tears. It did, I mean, to me, mm. it didn't seem like she was she was putting on an act. I mean, it wasn't she wasn't bawling her eyes out and, and crying in this Rittenhouse esque way where it was just like whoa, like that is a very huge emotional reaction. She was emotional, but it did actually seem pretty genuine. And I think for the most part, her performance on the stand was impressive. I mean. She just came across as a very, you know, confident and fairly consistent witness, at least in terms of what she thinks her story is. And um, in terms of like, did she have any flubs or what? You know, I, I don't I don't remember any flubs. And she yeah, she, she was just, I think, a very strong, a strong witness. And I talked to some defense lawyers who were paying attention and they, they said, you know, it was probably the right move by the defense to put her on the stand. Yeah, you actually had a line in one of your stories. I think it's from one of your stories. You write, her testimony was perhaps the best opportunity for the defense to undercut the government's case. That's right. Yeah. Say more about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the government, their case basically boils down to Elizabeth Holmes' credibility. Do you believe it? Do you not? Right. They're saying that she did this and she always had had. You know, she intentionally was deceiving investors and patients. Um, the best opportunity to say that's not true is to hear directly from her, right? And so she went on the stand and she said, look, I've made some mistakes. 
There are things looking back that I should have done differently, but I had my head sort of in the clouds, right? Like I was really focused on research and development. I was really focused on the grand vision of this company. I was focused on trying to revolutionize laboratory science and empowering people to have more control over their health. And if there were problems with the technology, like my lab directors were more in touch with that than I was. The scientists in the labs were more in touch with that than I was. And I just, you know, I didn't ever talk to Rupert Murdoch or Betsy DeVos's people or the Walton family and the others who've poured money into the company and said things that I thought were lies, that I thought were untrue. Um, you know, I, I, I wish I would have done a few things differently, but for the most part, you know, I, I think I was a good faith actor. I mean, that was her testimony. And, um, you know, hearing that from her is like a lot more powerful than, than hearing it from witnesses who knew her or hearing it from a bunch of lawyers. Right. So, um, mm. Yeah, I, th I think when the jury, you know, as the jury's deliberating this case, they're going to be thinking like, do we believe her? Do we not believe her? I mean, so much of this turns on like whether she's a believable person. And I don't know if the past is any guide. She does seem to be pretty persuasive. So I guess we'll see. We'll see what the jury thinks. Did she? So she has this trademark deep voice that she uses when she wants to pitch her product. Um, how did her voice sound? Was it at all different than the way people described it? This is the question everyone asks, and the answer is underwhelming, so prepare yourself. And it's that she had Bobby, a deep Give me something good here. Come on, man. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, on the voice question, it's just like she had – oops, sorry. I need to shut off my email. Can you turn oh, off your notifications, Bobby? Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> on the voice question, um, it's just not – it's honestly just not that interesting. It's like she had a deep-sounding voice, but it, it didn't sound remarkably deep. It didn't sound like – like bar like a baritone that was sort of like fabricated. I mean, it was, yeah, it was a deep sounding voice, but it's not, I, I don't know what else to say about it, to be honest. I mean, like, the, so like people have pointed to clips like on Mad Money when she, like the-, the She was right, with Jim Kramer. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Right when she went on after the Wall Street Journal story came out by John Kerry Rue exposing the company and she was in full like damage control mode. She had like a really deep voice and that, so like, the Elizabeth Holmes we heard in the San Jose courtroom was not that low, but it was like a little bit higher than that, but still like a deep, a, a deep voice. It wasn't, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it wasn't, it wasn't significantly higher than what you've heard from other interviews with her. If you just like go on YouTube and watch commencement speeches or Ted talks or, you know, her talking to Bill Clinton on stage, it kind of sounded like that. So why do you think people are so obsessed with the voice thing? I mean, I had to ask it. Yeah. Um, why are people obsessed with the voice thing? I think it's a, a curious idiosyncrasy that mm -hmm. provides a glimpse into a person that many people think is like a sociopath. It provides yeah. a glimpse into someone who's just incredibly bizarre and eccentric and, you know, wore black turtlenecks to look like her idol, Steve Jobs, and supposedly changed her voice in order to concoct this false image of herself and a company that people say it was a house of cards. I don't know. I mean, um, if, if it is true that she has changed her voice, it's just like strange. Like it's weird. Like, why would you do that? Um, there is supposedly research that says, um, you know, women with deeper voices tend to be trusted more in, mm. you know, business circles, uh, male dominated business circles, whether or not she did it because of that, who knows? And again, I don't even know that she changed her voice. So I don't, I can't even say, you know, whether it's fake or real or, or some, something in the middle. I have no idea, but you're right. It has like captured the, the nation's imagination. Every time I do a Theranos story, there's somebody on Twitter who's like, but what did her voice sound like? Yeah. Um, so. <laughs>
maybe she was just listening to a lot of NPR and wanted to could be yeah could the tones be. Of, of Bobby Allen. Bobby <laughs> Allen is with us here on Big Technology Podcast. He is a tech reporter at NPR, stands for National Public Radio. Um, he's talking to us here with his normal voice, which we appreciate. Why don't we get into some of the the four main arguments that Elizabeth Holmes made uh, in her defense, and we can sort of pick those apart when we get back right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back here in the Big Technology Podcast with Bobby Allen, an NPR tech reporter based in San Francisco. Bobby, uh, what happened to you in San Francisco recently? And did that instill faith in the court system uh, for you? Or uh, did you lose some faith in the justice system in San Francisco? <sighs> yeah, I was on my Vespa and I got hit by a car. When I was on my way back from hot yoga, on my way to Four Barrel Coffee, if I died, it would have been the most San Francisco death ever. <laughs> uh, you just sounded very sympathetic and then also not sympathetic at all in one <laughs> sentence. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'll be taking tips after the interview. Yeah. Um, yeah no, okay? I'm feeling fine. Uh, I, I, I broke and dislocated my shoulder. I'm all banged up on my leg, but for the most part, I'm totally fine. But yeah, the California Highway Patrol, since it happened near an near an on-ramp. It was under their jurisdiction. They closed the case, couldn't find the guy who hit and ran. Uh, I'm assuming it's a guy. It was a black Mustang. Could have been a woman. Sure. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a bummer. I wish, I mean, I thought San Francisco would be camered up, but apparently they don't have cameras on this particular intersection. So there you go. Well, I'm sorry that happened to you and I'm glad you're feeling better. So thanks, man. Appreciate um, it. Your health and safety is our, is our number one concern here on the show. <laughs> so Speaking of health and safety, let's talk about the ways that Elizabeth Holmes might have failed to uh, ensure the health and safety of the people that were uh, using her products and some of the arguments that she might have made in court to say, hey, I'm innocent. That's a pretty good segue. I'm going to take uh, take credit for that segue. Um, so, <laughs> so Every, okay. When, when you, if you deliver a good segue and then say yeah. it's a good segue, that <laughs> segue dang it it's like it's like it's like it's like delivering a good joke and being like wasn't that a good joke it's like no if you have to say it's a good joke it was a bad joke please clap um okay so let's get into these arguments so first one um so this is coming i full disclosure ripped these from aaron griffith's story um number one she had been told by her colleagues that the technology worked is that what she said that that she had been told that the tech worked uh, and, yeah. and therefore wasn't in the wrong, but I, I do remember there being, at least reading John Kerrigan's book, uh, bad blood, there were pretty elaborate moves to sort of conceal the fact that the Edison wasn't working in demos and stuff like that. So what do you make of that? Yeah, exactly. So she was telling investors that, you know, this, the Edison device, which when you see pictures of it, it kind of looks like a mini like color printer, you know, that, and, and her idea was that these would be in, uh, you know, homes everywhere. And we could just, you know, little pinprick of blood, do hundreds of tests. And we could even predict, you know, we're pre-diabetic before we're pre-diabetic and give us a course of care. And it would be amazing and fast and cheap and yeah, totally revolutionize 
healthcare. But she was saying that that her Edison could do hundreds of tests. She even told Roger Parloff in that now infamous Fortune uh, cover story that it, it one day will be able to do more than a thousand when. You know, in fact, Erica Chung, who's uh, work used to work at Theranos and became a whistleblower, said it could do maximum of a dozen tests. Right. Mm -hmm. So the government saying, yeah, this thing could do 12. And she was saying hundreds. And as she was telling investors hundreds, she like brought in these uh, commercial lab testing devices. She tweaked them a little bit. Didn't tell anyone and then said, oh, that's a trade secret. That's why we're not telling anyone and, and, and sort of like hid that from everyone. Very, very secretive moves. But that is part of her defense that she didn't exactly know what was going on with the technology, that she wasn't as close to it and its particulars as her lab directors. Did you find that believable? I mean, it's sort of, to me, that, that seems super far-fetched. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do I find that believable? <laughs> Alex, I'm, uh, you and I are in different positions. I can't tell you what is believable or not believable. That is for the men and women of the jury to decide. I know you're going to roll your eyes at this, but I can't tell you what's believable. That's not my job. I am the bearer of facts, Alex Kantrowitz. I am not one who makes determinations on the facts. I know you hate me. I don't hate you. I get it, but it's kind of weak. Okay. <laughs> second one is that the broader narrative was more complicated than the prosecution made it seem. That's right. Yeah. Well, you so, talked about how it was a little messy. Yeah. No, that, that's been a theme that the defense has been harping on, that basically the government is showing the jury a dirty lens, right? That they have this like super clean cut story of Elizabeth Holmes being this menacing fraudster who is out to dupe mm -hmm. Rupert Murdoch of, you know, millions of dollars and that she always wanted to get away with it. And the defense says at one point yesterday, which I, th I thought was really striking. Or I said yesterday. Sorry. I know we're recording on a Friday. But during closing arguments, um, her defense lawyer had a list of all of the board of directors of Theranos, like the former CEO of Wells Fargo, a former director of the CDC, um, you know, Henry Kissinger, and said, okay, if you wanted to start a company that was basically going to be a shell company that was going to run a criminal enterprise – would you put these people on your board? Because I sure wouldn't. That's a good point. Right? Um, and, she, and, and the defense also said, look, um, we have like, you know, three patients who testified about faulty results. There are thousands and thousands of patients you haven't heard of. So the government is focusing in on tiny little pictures, tiny little pixels, and this very broad picture. And if you really sort of pan out and get the whole picture – it's not a picture of fraud. It's a picture of, uh, you know, a complicated company that made some bad decisions and ultimately unraveled. But she's not a fraudster. That's what that's what she's saying. That is interesting. I mean, the argument that she you would you wouldn't have all these legendary folks on the board if you're trying to commit a fraud is an interesting one. On the other hand, at a certain point, it's like a lot of frauds aren't straightforward frauds from the beginning. They start out with good intentions. And the problem is like, you know, it's not the crime, it's the cover up often that, that gets yeah. people. And when, when you get going and, and you have to have a certain level of ability to say, hey, this isn't working when you run a company, when you run a startup, when people trust you with hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. And so to me, that's kind of a weak defense that, oh, these people are on the board. Actually, you know, you probably started out in a good place and you had the people on board to do it as many companies do. But what the problem actually 
actually happened was when it was very clear that this thing wasn't living up to its billing and then the lie perpetuated in order to keep it going. Right. And I mean, what what the government would say in response to that is, you know, what we learned is that the investors, the board members, every like luminary attached to this company did not do due diligence. Like they let their Mm. questions stop at a certain point. Like nobody who invested money, like looked at the Edison and opened it up and understood how it actually worked. For sure. Yeah, exactly. And and so like, you know, once you know you have that going, then you can sort of take some more liberties that you wouldn't if you had some more oversight. And hence, you know, I think this argument is kind of weak. Let's go to, so we talked about, uh, she was told the technology worked. You mentioned a little bit like one of the arguments is that she was trying to protect trade secrets. Um, Come on, you know, if a trade secret is running a test on somebody else's machine, then you need better secrets. No, that's right. John John Kerry has this amazing line and he's like, Elizabeth Holmes, multi- multi-billion dollar innovation was tweaking somebody else's technology and doing it poorly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the trade secret thing doesn't really bear muster that the narrative is more complicated, the board and all that stuff. Well, yeah, of course it's going to be a little bit more complicated, but it doesn't seem that much more complicated that, um, that it seems like grounds for acquittal. And then we go to the, I would say probably the most surprising and intriguing storyline of it all was that she was controlled. She's arguing that she was controlled by uh, her boyfriend and business partner, uh, Ramesh or Sunny Balwani. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I think you referenced it a little bit in the, in the first segment, but the, um, the testimony on this was like probably the uh, apex of, of the case. So can you explain a little bit more about like, about what's going on there? We had never heard this before. I believe until this trial. So, what's the argument there exactly? And how no, that's right. That, yeah, that's right. So, Sonny Balwani is this dude who made a ton of money during the dot com boom in Silicon Valley. He's 19 years older than Elizabeth Holmes. They struck up a friendship that then evolved into a romantic partnership, then became the number two at Theranos. And even during the rise of Theranos, she kept their relationship surreptitious. She like never revealed it to investors or anyone close to the company, despite them living together, right? Um, but yeah, it came out during the trial and she she went on the stand and testified to the jury that he manipulated her, controlled her, he uh, would rape her, he um, basically, you know, that he was this mastermind and she was the puppet and that she never told anyone about this abuse, but that the abuse did get in the way of her judgment and affected her in ways that she said she couldn't fully calculate, right? Um, and what the government would say is, and they said during their, their closing argument is like, look at members of the jury saying that Elizabeth Holmes is guilty of fraud is not saying that you reject these claims of abuse, right? You can hold two things to be true at once, that Elizabeth Holmes is a fraudster and that sh- that her, her claims against uh, her former intimate partner are true. You th- it doesn't have to be uh, precluding, right? But it did throw a wrench in the whole thing because it, it, it turned into this situation where the government went up on the stand and brought all these text messages in. Like when one of them referred to the other as Tiger, the other one called, I mean, Sonny then called Elizabeth T. Grass, you know, one called the other my Nirvana. I mean, it was all sorts of like really like clawing, like uh, lovey-dovey. lovey-dovey. 
text messages between them as a way of saying like, oh, you're you're saying you're being abused. It sure sounds like you're in a loving relationship. Like how abusive was this? And I will say, Alex, like that spectacle, the spectacle of like a male prosecutor grilling a Uh young woman about her story of abuse in the Me Too era. I thought that was like a little tone deaf and you could tell that it was getting kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. No, totally. I mean, I, the legal experts I talked to said this could end up backfiring on them. Mm-hmm. But then the, the flip side is, well, look, if you're a government prosecutor and you're trying to try this white collar crime of wire fraud, and then the defense is throwing in sexual abuse, you can't leave it unaddressed. Like you, you can't just leave that out there because it's going to be like conceding it by implication, right? You've got to say something in response. But their response was to like question whether or not it happened at all. And some people thought that was like a really bad look. Seems like it's in poor taste. Yeah. You had a really interesting line in your story where you you quoted, I think, an expert that said, 11th hour claims of mental or physical abuse are not well received as excuses, especially when the defendant has been living the high life for years, which would apply to Elizabeth Holmes. So it's like, you know, on one hand, she like basically did this and might have been uh, Hail Mary or ill-advised uh, to bring this story in at the, at, again, the 11th hour. On the other hand, maybe it worked where the government sort of overplayed its hand and, you know, turned a, you know, this, this thing that could have ended up hurting Holmes into something that might have helped her. Yeah. That's the dynamics at play. No, absolutely. And like really big picture, Alex, like I think the defense's goal is to just make this look more complicated. Like all you need to get a hung jury is to Mm. get one person to be like, ah, you know what? I kind of believe that she was abused and that she was raped and that that really messed her up. Maybe I know someone in my life who was manipulated by a former partner. We can't convict her because of that. If they get just one person to be really hung up on that, they're not going to all agree. You need a unanimous Mm. verdict. And that's kind of a win. She walks out of the courtroom and isn't found guilty, right? Um, and there's so much like that in the defense where they're just like introducing all of these points that hopefully will give at least one juror some hesitation. Um, and that's – yeah, that's kind of their strategy here to just make the Therano story look a lot messier than you and I knew it to be before this trial. Like if you watch a documentary, if you read the Carrie book, you have one idea of Theranos, but the defense is like, ah, the devil's in the details, right? And, the, and yeah. when you really look at the details, it is just a super nuanced picture. Right. I mean, it is interesting because there's this media portrayal, uh, which I think John Carrie did a pretty good job telling the story and broke the news. And that's why we're here today. Um, but on the other hand, like any deep and like legal discussion of this is going to inherently be more nuanced. That's right. And perhaps like the bombshell media coverage might have actually also played to Elizabeth Holmes's favor. Oh, completely. Because the jury is going to be like, Hey, well, that's not what I heard about this, you know, reading or reading this book or listening to this podcast or all this stuff. Yeah, no, completely. I mean, on the cover of fortune magazine, countless glowing stories about her appearing on TV constantly. And you know, the backing of former cabinet members, the, you know, the backing of like the former CEO of Wells Fargo. Like I said, I mean, it's mm. it's not like she had a bunch of schmoes on the street supporting her technology. I mean, she surrounded herself with some of the most trusted and credible people she could find. Right. Um, so, yeah, but the media, the media coverage of her, there, there was a really good piece in the Washington Post that was that was looking at the media's role in the rise 
of Theranos and just how so many journalists, I mean, not just a Fortune magazine story, so, so many journalists were sort of credulous. I mean, it's such a, um, I don't want to say seductive, that doesn't feel like the right word, but it is just like such a great story. This in, in the male-dominated tech world, this startup founder who drops out of Stanford at age 19, right, has this like fear of needles and then creates this technology that is trying to revolutionize the way you and I you know, get blood tests. We no longer need needles. I mean, it's, and she like looks, she, she has this look that is like, you know, patterned after Steve Jobs. I mean, the whole thing is just like a little too perfect as a narrative arc. And as journalist, Alex, I mean, just saying it out loud, like it's a great story, is it not? So I could imagine like being a tech reporter during that time and being like, yeah, I want to profile Elizabeth Holmes. That's a huge story. It's a great story. Um, and if I got that assignment, would I go down the Theranos headquarters and demand to like get some screwdrivers out and take apart the Edison and really understand the technology? Absolutely not. But like you might speak to okay, but you might speak to people though. That's that you know clients and stuff like that. that yeah, but even journalists who did it. that wrote stories that were like super puff pieces. I mean, the New Yorker did like a six thousand word piece on Theranos, and there was like four critical graphs, right? Yeah, well, listen, I think that like, you know, it's it's interesting they got taken by Elizabeth Holmes. Do I think you or I would be taken by her? I'd like to think no. I have <laughs> Well, I'm I'm serious. I think there's a lot of bad journalism out there, and I yeah. don't think that like I'm going to consign myself to be part of it. Uh there we do need a uh you know, a degree of skepticism and I think the practice of like writing hagiographies if you don't even know what's going on and the product is somewhat shameful. And no, I'm not, I wouldn't participate in it. Yeah, no, I'm not trying to apologize for it. And I would hope yeah. that I would be better than it as well. But uh, just saying- no, Bobby, the, I know you. you. You'd be better than that. Thanks, Alex. But the, na- the nature the yeah, the, the nature of deadline-driven daily journalism is such that you can't turn every story into an investigation. And of course. But I'm, I'm talking about the 6,000-word New Yorker story. Yeah, That's yeah, the one yeah. you brought up. Right. The cover story on Fortune. That's the one yeah. you brought up. Yeah. Yeah, you're not you're not scrambling to file that by five PM if you're starting it in the morning. If you're writing <laughs> like right. a short story on it, fine. But if well, that's you, right. If you spend six thousand words on the New Yorker on a company that's a fraud and you don't notice that, shame on you. Yeah, there's actually. Let me share this anecdote really quick, Alex. There was a, a stringer who was doing a story for NPR on Theranos um, years and years ago, and was at I think a Walgreens with Elizabeth Holmes, and was like asking to like interview a patient and actually see someone get a pinprick of blood because so many patients were getting blood drawn from needles and. The reporter was like, wait, I, I thought the whole innovation was like, you don't need needles. Like, what's going on here? And she kept pushing Elizabeth Holmes for like to like be set up with a patient who was getting the pinprick of blood. And then suddenly a fire alarm goes off out of nowhere and everyone's yeah. evacuated. And she was mm-hmm. like, that was weird. And, and it, like ended up not doing the story. And it was like good on her. One of her proudest journalistic moments to be like, something does not pass the yeah. sniff test here. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Shouldn't shouldn't be that hard. You've covered a lot of cases. How does this one compare to the um, other cases you've you've covered? Yeah, this one is excruciatingly long. I think any reporter <laughs> covering Theranos is like, can it please be over? I mean, three and a half months of testimony, and the fact that the reporter's got to get up at like two or three in the morning to start waiting in line—it's unbelievably long. For the mm. most part, it's dry, right? I mean. Yeah. The government subpoenaed thousands and thousands and thousands of documents and emails and text messages. And most of the witnesses are going through very technical details about assays, which is a word I didn't know before the Theranos trial, which is a fancy Mm. word for a blood test, you know, going through exactly like 
you know, the 2.0 of the technology, 3.0 of the technology. I mean, it's just, there is just so many, so many technical details that would make, I mean, you could even see members of the jury sort of like having trouble sticking with it at times. I've seen a few people like dozing off in the audience. I mean, for the most part, this is this trial has not been fireworks. I think Elizabeth Holmes taking the stand had the entire courtroom enwrapped and everyone was really, really, really paying attention to her and what she was mm-hmm. saying. But for the most part, it's been long and dry. Yeah. Okay. This is journalist penance for taking this story uh, at face value. <laughs> now you have to wake up at five. Exactly. You're uh, repenting for the sins. Maybe maybe not of NPR. Clearly that you had a colleague that didn't buy it, but of your predecessors. Okay. Let's take one more break and then come back and speak to Bobby about what happens next and what this means for Silicon Valley more broadly. So we'll do that after the break. We'll be back right after this on Big Technology Podcast, and we'll see you in just a minute. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work Podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast with Bobby Allen. He's a tech reporter at NPR based in San Francisco. He's been waking up so early to go to the Theranos trials just so he can speak with us about what's going to happen next. Can I be a special correspondent for big technology, Alex, or am I not up to that level yet? Uh, You're in. Joining us now is big technology special correspondent. (laughs) Yes. Bobby Allen. (laughs) We will speak to you in big technology voice. (laughs) Today in San Jose, something amazing happened. So you mocking NPR, like that really shows me you don't listen to NPR because no, very few people sound like (laughs) that these days, but. It shows I don't listen to it. You know, I, I do think that, sorry, I hope this doesn't like end up in like your PR team's inbox or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, I like NPR. I like Bobby. Uh, um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad that you guys have moved beyond that. But no, every time I do listen, I'm like the echo will play NPR when you ask it for like what's going on. And it does, it does still sound like that. <laughs> Maybe you have your um, connected home device people on that stuff. <laughs> I'll look into it. I'll see what we can do yeah. to make everyone sound like you and not like the voice of God, Alex. I'll, I will get on that. You know, I think I've been owned. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so how is, before we get into what's going to happen next, um, how are, uh, how's COVID going in, in San Francisco? It seems like everybody in New York has COVID. Do you have COVID, Bobby? What's the I don't have COVID. No, I'm getting boosted Good. this weekend. Nice. Uh, the mask, the mask mandate, mandatory for all things indoors, just came down a couple days ago. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, you know, knock, knock on wood, it seems to be not as bad as New York right now, but, but mm-hmm. I guess t- time will tell. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for the most part, I think, I think, I think San-, San Francisco's approach has, you know, been seen as kind of impressive, right? I mean, obviously we're not, it's not like we're, you know, the best in the world or something. We're not like Portugal, but, but San Francisco has been taking it very seriously. And every bar and restaurant I go to has someone outside, you know, comparing your state issued ID to your vaccination card. And I've been in other cities where it has not been that diligent. So I've been pretty impressed mm-hmm. with how even like, you know, Mom and pop stores and dive bars are like taking the mandates like really seriously. I don't know if you found that too, but it's like for sure. Uh, yeah, it's the same in New York now. I mean, I'm in the middle of waiting for uh, of uh, test results uh, because I went to a concert uh, earlier this week, 
LCD sound system. And hopefully uh, I didn't contract the virus. Um, so we'll find out soon. If, if I end up on the show sounding terrible next week, um, we'll just say it's COVID. Okay, yeah, enough if, about if you that. Got, if if, if yeah. you did get COVID, the, the blood is on James Murphy's hands. I mean, we know that. We right? do. We have to blame him. Yeah, luckily we're not going to do the test in the Theranos device. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, I won't compliment the segue there. So what what happens uh, next, Bobby? So the jury is deliberating as we speak. Yes. Um, when can we expect the result and what do you expect to happen? So um, the jury can return a verdict in an hour from now, two weeks from now. There's There's really no way of predicting. Based on past trials I've covered – um, the more complicated the case, the longer it takes. I mean, think about the last time like you and your friends went to a restaurant, right? And how the group message went on and on and on and on just to decide where to like get dinner. Like try to get 12 people to unanimously agree on 11 very complicated counts of wire fraud, right? It's not something mm. that you can do swiftly. So I think it's going to take some real time. Um, what I'm not really sure what's going to happen. I, I genuinely like putting my my journalist hat aside and just talking to you one-on-one, Alex, I literally have no idea. I could see it going yeah. anyway. I mean, I could see a guilty verdict. I could see an acquittal. I can see a hung jury. I could, like I, like I said earlier, I could see maybe one or two of them really fixating on a detail or two from the defense, whether it be abuse or something else and saying, mm, I just don't think the burden of proof was clear. I mean, during closing arguments, the defense spent a lot of time which is typical in this kind of trial, explaining just how high the burden of proof is in a criminal trial beyond a reasonable doubt. So if you just have the tiniest iota of doubt that any of the charges happened, you can't convict. I mean, he went over it, uh, Kevin da- Down- Downey, one the of the defense attorney. lawyers. Yeah, went over yeah. it in like really, really specific detail about just yeah, how so, high uh, is. A staircase of doubt, can you describe yes, exactly. that? Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. What's that? Yeah. I, I mean, he was he was just drawing an analogy to say, like, in so, other, in so many other parts of, of law enforcement um, and even the court system, there are different burdens of proof. Like, usually to, like, stop and frisk someone, you need to have the belief that someone committed a crime or is about to commit a crime, right? Uh, reasonable suspicion, they call it, that, like, something happened. And, like, a civil trial, it's, like, the preponderance of evidence. So it's more likely than not that this thing happened. But yeah, criminal trials beyond any reasonable doubt, this thing happened. So it's, mm. yeah, it's a, it is an extremely high bar. Um, and that's part of the reason, Alex, why you see so few people in Silicon Valley charged with fraud, right? I mean, we work and I mean, uh, executives of Jewel, there, there's a lot of startups where people have said these people committed fraud or did things that were exaggerating the product or, um, you know, things that like veered into criminal territory and, there may have been investigations launched, but we have yet to see charges, right? And mm-hmm. obviously, every single one of these startups and the executives involved are very like fact-specific cases. But part of the story of not seeing charges in Silicon Valley very often is just high, how high the bar is. It's convincing a jury beyond a reasonable doubt is a really, really, really hard thing. And the government thinks, do I want to use lots of taxpayer money to bring on this case that's going to end in a mistrial or acquittal? You don't. You want to be confident going in. And because of that high burden, yeah, you don't you just don't see a lot of cases out of the Northern District of California. That's where the U.S. Attorney's Office is out here that that polices Silicon Valley or is supposed to police Silicon Valley, right? 
Yeah, there's uh, the staircase of uh, steps on a staircase of reasonable doubt. This is a, from a tweet that Aaron Griffith posted last week. There's no evidence, scintilla, reasonable suspicion, probable cause, preponderance of evidence, clear and convincing, reasonable doubt, and then beyond a reasonable doubt. Yep. So you really, really need to be sure in order to convict somebody. Exactly. And that's why it seems likely that this is going to be, as you mentioned, uh, or as you've sort of talked about over the course of this interview, a hung jury seems likely. It's possible. It's definitely possible. Um, I mean, another another way to frame this is not to look at the burden of proof, because that's how people like you and I like thinking about it in this like very rational, logical way. And mm. instead thinking about it from an emotional valiance, like thinking about the way that, that the, the emotional testimony is going to like stick with the jurors, right? Because emotional testimony, seeing someone cry on the stand, that affects you. And juries can be fickle. Juries can be unpredictable. Juries don't always, you know, make decisions that everyone agrees are, are rational decisions. So you just have to see. Maybe the abuse stuff is is really gonna gonna resonate and really gonna end up, you know, making them all believe that she was not guilty. I don't know. Um, you know, maybe maybe the jury will get in there and say, you know, I've been in here for nearly four months, but the most convincing thing is the thing I last heard. And who gets the mm -hmm. last word in a criminal trial? Federal prosecutors. Mm. So they are going to have the last word. They're going to go into the jury will go into the deliberation room, start talking. And you probably know people, Alex, who like they're sort of persuaded by the last argument that they heard. If, they, if these 12 people are like that, then they're going to believe the government. I mean, it's just there's so many yeah. different ways to sort of like analytically slice and dice how the jury is going to uh, render a verdict and what what facts are going to stick out, and what facts will not stick out. And it's. It's challenging. It's just really, really hard to know um, what those conversations will look like. But for people like interested in a Theranos trial, like there's the verdict or lack of verdict. But then what I think is actually more revealing as a courts reporter is when journalists track down the jurors and have interviews oh, yeah. about what was that like? Did people scream? do that? Did people walk out? Oh, completely. Yeah. Mm. That's when we that's when you glean real insight and what worked and what didn't. I mean, people like you and I can sit around and speculate all day, but having a few jurors sit down and have on the record conversations about what those conversations actually look like, I mean, that is fascinating. I think that's way more fascinating than the verdict, don't you? I mean, like how it was reached is way more fascinating than it happened, right? For sure. Yeah, that's that's a great story. Uh and then if she's convicted, she goes to jail. <laughs> So if she's convicted, the judge will set a sentencing date and the prosecutors will say, we want her to be put away for this number of years. And the defense will probably say, we think she should get probation. The judge can split the difference or he can go on the higher end of the prosecutor's recommendation or the lower end. It's a big, complicated, nuanced mm -hmm. sort of calculation, but um, she could go to prison. Yeah, the statutory maximum is 20 years in federal prison. It's very, very, very unlikely. That she that would seems, ever get that. Yeah, uh, Martin Screlly was convicted of wire fraud. And I think, and you're going to have to fact check me on this. I think he got seven years, didn't he? Hmm. Um, obviously different cases, but it's another sort of, what do you want to, what do you want how do you want to describe Martin Screlly? But another, another high profile fraud case. Um, and he got seven. So uh, yeah, the government's definitely going to ask seven for seven years for Martin. Yeah. There you mm -hmm. go. So he's, 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 they're definitely going to ask for some prison time. How much we don't know. Another thing we haven't talked about, Alex, is the fact that she's a new mother, which didn't come up during closings. And I thought it would. But, you know, there's uh, a nursing room in the courtroom so that Elizabeth Holmes can nurse for her, her newborn baby. Right. Mm -hmm. 
I don't, I don't know that the, 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 I think the jury may know that she's a mother. It wasn't a focus of the trial, but definitely during sentencing, if she is convicted, you can expect the defense to say, you really want to put this new mother behind bars, right? right. And there's even very cynical people who think that she had a kid specifically timed to her criminal trial as a way of drumming up sympathy. I think that's a really cynical take, but there are people who know Elizabeth Holmes very well who say this was part of her attempt to get out of this whole thing. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, that would be next level. So before we leave, let's talk a little bit about the future. If she is convicted, how does it change things for Silicon Valley, if at all? Because there's this line of thinking that Silicon Valley typically likes to promise more than it actually has to offer these techs, you know, startup tech companies. And if Theranos, which promised more than it had to offer, uh, is found and Elizabeth Holmes, are, you know, is found to be guilty of doing that and committing wire fraud, then, you know, you could end up seeing more cases like this and that could have a chilling effect on Silicon Valley. I personally think that that's ridiculous. This is a unique case. And you know, we already know that a lot of the investors weren't even pure Silicon Valley investors as it was. That's were. right. Yeah. So it, it seems to me that the argument that this could potentially like chill startup investing um, or startup creation is a little bit ludicrous, but I'm curious what you think. I think it's also ridiculous. I think to say this is a referendum on the Valley as, uh, you know, some reporters really like emphasizing that it is, I just don't know what the proof is for that. Right. I mean, most of the like you said, the largest checks came from outside of the valley, like the Rupert Murdoch's of the world. Yes, she had some backing, uh, you know, from Tim Draper and others. Um, PitchBook (laughs) did a funny analysis of where are the Theranos investors now that the company imploded. And Tim Draper, (laughs) in the Mm -hmm. wake of Theranos falling apart, actually doubled down on his medical device (laughs) investment. Which right. uh, is that intuitive or counterintuitive? I don't know, but it's just a fact. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I think Theranos is a, what's 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 the Latin phrase? It's a sui generis sort of situation. It's just like such a specific set of facts, such a specific uh, CEO at the center of it. Um, yeah, startups are always making you know huge, world changing promises about their technology, but very few are doing it in the healthcare space. Very few are doing it with you know the, the lives and the the um, you know the the health of patients um, on the line, right? Um, like one of Elizabeth Holmes' early mentors was Larry Ellison. Right, who doesn't have <laughs> the best track record? If if you if you look at some, you know, the things that he promoted early on in his career, uh, vaporware esque products, right? But he would tell Elizabeth Holmes, you know, early on in a startup, the engineers are always saying we can't get this update out to customers by the date you want it to be out, and just ignore that and push them and push them and push them. Um, and I think Elizabeth Holmes took that advice and applied it to Theranos. But look, like laboratory science is a slow and plotting type of research that, you know, it's not like you can get 50 more coders in a room and do a a coding marathon to get a software update out to people faster than expected. Science doesn't Mm. exactly work that way. Right. Um, But I think in investors, regardless of what the, what the verdict is. Yeah. I agree with you, Alex. Like, I don't think it's going to have a chilling effect on, on future investments. I mean, Tim Draper has said on the record, like, and most investors say on the record, right. That like, we expect some of our dollars to be lost. I mean, that's why it's called venture capital, right? It's like, you're taking a big risk by placing your money on a dream, on an idea 
if it doesn't come to fruition, that's part of the gamble, right? Um, so yeah, I, I think I think it's a little overblown to try to extrapolate too much from from Theranos, um, but that's just me. What do I know? I, I don't know. It seems like you know a lot. You've, you've covered a lot of these type of cases. You're a tech reporter for NPR in San Francisco. I trust what you have to say. <laughs> Bobby Allen is a tech reporter for NPR based in San Francisco. His Twitter handle is Bobby Allen, B-O-B-B-Y-A-L-L-Y-N. Give him a follow there. You can also follow his work on NPR. And uh, Bobby, want to say thank you for coming by. Appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. This was really fun. Thanks for having me. It was me. a blast. It was a blast. Hopefully, they're still deliberating on Wednesday when this publishes. Otherwise, we'll have to re-record. Okay. And that, <laughs> that will be just as fun. Okay. See you yes, later. Yes, it Bye. will. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Nate Gwatney, for editing and, and um, turning this baby around. Thank you to Red Circle for hosting and selling the ads. Appreciate you guys. Thank you to Bobby again for joining. And thanks to all of you, the listeners. If you are a new or recent listener and haven't rated us yet, um, I would love it if you could go to your app of choice, probably Apple or Spotify, if it has a rating system, and tap a five-star rating. That would be much appreciated. And uh, also, yeah, I guess even if you're a recurring listener and you haven't done that yet, we'd appreciate that. And if you're a new listener and you want to subscribe, it would be great to have you on board. We do these every Wednesday, uh, stories with uh, tech insiders and outside agitators like Bobby. And uh, we hope to see you again for the next one of these. So thanks again. We'll be back next week with the year-end wrap-up. Oh, my God, 2021 is almost done. And our guest is going to be Casey Newton of the Platformer Newsletter. We always have a good time when Casey comes through, and next week will be no exception. And so we hope to see you then. Until then, everybody, have a great week, and I'll see you next time.